Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, here with my spell jamming companion, Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos. How's the uh, wild space? Wanna, you know, I'm just looking to be your miniature giant space hamster. You, if, when I think of miniature giant space hamsters, <laughs> I think of you. Mm. Uh, I'm not going to say why, but uh, I will just leave it at that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we, we've, got, uh, we've got an episode to do. Uh, lots to talk about. Oh, I'm excited about this. And we decided to, for our main topic, look at an old adventure, but not just any old adventure. The very first Spelljammer published adventure from TSR. And uh, I cannot think of a better adventure to talk about at this particular time in this particular place. It is wild, wild space. It is the wild, wild space. Uh, for, all, for all of you talking head <laughs> the fans. wild wild space yeah the wild wild space now that's gonna be in my head all right yep mm-hmm. uh but before that we have both news and questions from listeners yeah. so we're going to hit on the uh hit on the questions from our listeners first starting with andrew Bishkinski, the winner of the dm challenge and author of fine mm. works such as the dragon witch of rashomon uh andrew asked when discussing the 4E adventure that you talked about, Teos mentioned the pleasure of reading. I'd love a bit more of a deep dive into the importance of that when writing versus the importance of it being a manual. And since you, since your word spawned this, I'm going to let you have the first crack at it. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I think this is something you and I have chatted about just even, you know, in, in just you and I talking during design projects and things like that, that y- you want what you want the audience to be pleased uh, in, in all facets of the experience. And the first experience is reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you read a product and you don't enjoy it, you probably won't even run it. Um, but also a lot of products don't even get run, right? Like, like mm-hmm. You buy it and you think you might run it, but you just read it and it, then it goes back on your shelf and you, you think someday I'll run that and you never do. So you better enjoy that process because that's probably inter- your interaction. It, it may be your only interaction, but at least it's the first one, right? Yeah, very true. I mean, there are not just adventures, not just d products. There are whole games out there that I would consider more works of art than functioning games. Mm-hmm. And that's not to denigrate them, right? Mm-hmm. You can you can create a game that is artistically beautiful, uh, linguistically beautiful, and it can not be the most exciting game. Um, it could not even be the most interesting game, and and that's okay if that is the understanding for you as the creator and your audience, right? Yeah. In literature, there's something called the closet drama, which is a play, but it's not meant to be a play. It's meant just to be read. Mm. And and so, you know, that's a perfectly legitimate art form, even though it's in a form that you would think is supposed to be staged. It's it's not. And, mm. you know, so I, I see nothing wrong with games that don't play as well as they read. But again, yeah. if. if as long as that's your purpose, as long as that's the understanding. Oh yeah. I also think the reading experience, the type of like there's a type of pleasure you should have, right? So like when we wrote Ack Inc., we made it funny. 
So right. it's supposed to be fun and jovial and, and funny mm -hmm. as you're reading through, which people have remarked it is, thanks to, you know, you and mm -hmm. I's writing, but also Scott's work and yeah. all of the Penny Arcade team putting all these very funny things. And, and so as you read it, you know, you're supposed to chuckle. And in fact, one of the things I enjoy is when I look at this thing, I laugh. Like, right. I laugh as I read this book, which is exactly the point of it, right? Yeah. Um, similarly, there are some adventures that describe wondrous locations that when I read them, I'm inspired and I have that sense of awe, which is exactly right. what you want. And that's going to translate to a DM at the table using that material and, and making it that way. But sometimes there's some things that I get the concept that they're awe-inspiring, but I'm not inspired with any awe while reading it. And that's unfortunate because right. that was one of your jobs, right? Like right. you could have right. done that. Right. And even, I mean, if you fail in that, it's okay. But at least give the game master the tools then to create the awe-inspiring experience for their players. Yeah. And if you can't do either of those, then it's a total failure. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and in this adventure, I, I know in a few places, I, we're going to talk about that yeah. as, yeah. as a, the, the writing as a user manual, you know, the writing as a something to entertain the game master that's reading it or the yeah. supposedly the game master that's reading it. But when, even when we talk about the news, I'm going to talk about game design versus narrative, right? Yeah. Because that, it comes up, so often in our field and there's no there are so many wrong answers and no completely right answer yeah uh, yeah but I, I think that really is a thing that it goes to another level to take to take your writing to another level your product to another level this is one of those topics you, you want to look at and i the only way i know to do it is you just look at other work and and you know it when you see it, right? You read something, you go, God, I, I could read this all over again. I could it's just sure. it's so pleasurable to read and it so puts me in the mindset of whatever I'm supposed to be reading. Mm -hmm. And that's great, right? Yeah. I mean, and it, it depends on the audience, right? When I sit down to read an adventure, I'm reading it as a DM. I'm reading it as how is this telling me what the experience should be for myself and for the players? So when there's two pages of an epic poem in this, in this adventure, <laughs> to, to me, I will sit and read poetry when I want to sit and read poetry, uh -huh. and I will enjoy it at that level. But while I'm reading this adventure, it's not something that gets me. It's not something that I'm like, okay. ooh, okay, here's, here's this great poem. Uh, so, yeah, but that's just me. That's, I'm just yeah. one of an audience of th hundreds of thousands who are all different. So and I'll argue, like if I read, say, Temple of Elemental Evil, it has a couple of sort of really dumb level long box text pieces, right. you know, like a whole page of box text. Yep. But they're actually really well written. Like they're fun to read. Right. And, and I still, like I can remember quotes from those long passages. They are too long. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. But when you read them, they're fun, right? You right. know, it, it's, it's cool. The, yeah. what, what's being communicated there is just too much. It needed an editorial pass and to be a third as long, maybe a quarter right. as long. I don't know. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, in, in the class I teach, we went over box text this past week. So mm -hmm. all this is fresh in my mind of, you know, how much of this is actually necessary versus fun yeah. versus, you know, interesting but not relevant. You know, all, all that yeah. comes into play. And and we, we'll talk about this when we talk oh, yeah, about this adventure Wild Space. Is full yeah. of that topic. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. 
All right. So, uh, Andrew, I, I hope we sort of helped answer your question by saying we have no idea, uh, except, right, know, know what your goals are for your, your reader and do your best to hit those goals. And if entertainment is a big part of it, like it was when we wrote Acquisitions Incorporated, then, you know, then you have to also make sure it works, not just on the user manual level, but also on the entertaining entertainment level. Cool. And the next uh, is from Rich. Uh, I am a huge fan of the 4E Neverwinter campaign setting. The beleaguered post-apocalyptic big city is really different and unique. So a couple of questions. One, Neverwinter feels like it was very much ignored in the 4E project cycle. A couple of encounters products, and that was about it. Was this done intentionally to give the Neverwinter MMO room to stand on its own? It just seems so odd that they put out an entire setting book and then more or less left it alone. And the second question is along these lines, what D&D campaign settings are out there that you two think are uh, fun campaign environments that don't get the love they deserve? Mm. So I'll, I'll again let you uh, take the <laughs> well, lead on this. I, mean, I think that the reality of publishing is that these days in fourth edition, I mean, the designers specifically talked about this at the beginning of the edition, that going deep on settings was bad financial, bad financially. So you don't publish a Neverwinter campaign setting as good as it is, and it is awesome, and then follow up with three products. Like, you just don't. Uh, and so we're actually fortunate that two of the encounter seasons happened to be a Neverwinter, probably because it was so good, and I think because the author, one of the authors was involved in all three of those. Um, so, so that's sort of why... But but it wasn't sort of meant to be, right? And and we're lucky when we we end up with with the, to even have three products. That that's just the way things are these days. You publish one book, you're done, um, and 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 that's it. And so that's sort of the approach. It's not because it's an attempt to let it breathe or an attempt to, you know, it's really just financial yeah. sales drop. Yeah. When when I read this question, I was like. For Neverwinter to me got lots of attention during 4 yeah. it, it had its own campaign setting and an MMO, You're right? Yeah. And the MMO and a couple of, I mean, just a couple of adventures would be, it's more than uh, some people are getting right. Uh, Greyhawk yeah. fans are, are, uh, <laughs> you know, wanting their, their uh, 5e or 4e version of, you know, of their setting and they're not getting anything. So yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, that it's it's. I guess it's all relative, but uh, yeah. So the next question is: What D and D campaign settings are out there that you think are fun campaign environments that don't get the love they deserve? I mean, Birthright comes to mind as something that is, um, you know, D and D has not touched that kind of really war between nations type aspect, mm -hmm. and it was really positioned uniquely to do that. And, and Wizards has not tried to touch it. MCDM has. So you can use their product to run Birthright, right. um, you know, Kingdoms and Warfare and Strongholds and Followers. Um, but yeah, I don't know. What do you think, Sean? Uh, I think, well, with Dragonlance, I think that we might get that sort of war between nations feel. It's not necessarily, you know, portable into any campaign setting. Maybe it is. We'll find out. Um, yeah. For me, it's it's less about a specific setting and more about the feel of that setting. Uh, yeah, to, I know that there are differences between Greyhawk and Dragonlance and Aberon, right? I, I know that there are differences, but 
since they are so ubiquitous, to me, they're the same thing. Despite this, despite the details, you know, despite the differences in details, uh, and I think it's just because it, they are the main settings. So players, players want to play a Loxodon, mm-hmm. right? Even though there aren't Loxodon in any of those settings, and so they just sort of become the setting that, yeah, yeah. I want settings that are so different that they tell a particular story. Uh, Dark Sun to me does that. Sure. Right. You you can't yeah. you you probably could still tell the typical Forgotten Realms Greyhawk Eberron story, <laughs> but you have to go out of your way to ignore That's true. the setting in order to tell the story. So those are the sorts of campaign settings that I want to play in and that I want to create. Uh well and, and some of that I think, if I if you don't mind my interrupting, right. Some of it is that authors you know, fail to go back to, to really what the setting is supposed to be, right? Because Eberron is different. And so right. in theory, your adventure should be steeped in those characteristics, right? It should have that noir detective element. It should mm-hmm. have that machine high tech angle to it. Right. And like, I think Oracle War did a really good job with its uh, organized play adventures in that, you know, you are like on source leads, you know, flying through the sky and then you are... Uh, you know, dealing with a magical university and then, and, you know, all these kinds of things that, and, and solving, putting puzzles together and it's raining in the streets and, and, you know, those kinds of angles that feel like Eberron, because as soon as you make it like any other adventure, well, then you're doing that whole setting a disservice. Right. And you're right. Dark Sun is so different. It's kind of hard to mess it up. Right. Which is great. <laughs> and that's what, like, inst- you think institutionally, right? Eberron has the dragon mark houses. But you also, but you could just go to to the Forgotten Realms and you have guilds, right? Yeah. Waterdeep yeah. has all the guilds and all the guilds do special things, and you you have um, who's the Forgotten Realms god that make Gond, right? He mm-hmm. makes the Gondsmen. So right. right there, there's this natural uh, move. Warforged yeah. can just as easily be in, and you could do the same thing with Greyhawk, and it's because they've been around a while. You know, some more than others, but still a while. Right. I want a place where those institutions are torn out, where there is not a city to go to to buy goods. Where, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. That sort of thing where where the, the normal trope of whether you could call it high fantasy or low fantasy or, or whatever. But if all those things are still there, to me, it's still the same setting. The yeah, serial number has just been filed off. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's why I, w- I want campaign settings. Um that, like I said, that tear pieces out so much that you can't tell the typical we start in a tavern story. Uh, there are no taverns on this world. Sorry, you have to do something else. Uh, and, and let's really make this story something new and different. And, and uh, in the news, maybe we'll mention Aurora uh, because this fits perfectly with what I'm trying to talk, what trying to say. Uh I, just oh, wanna, I look forward to that. Yeah. And I want to say one other thing. Sometimes when settings are described, you know, they'll be described as high magic or low magic or, mm. or sword and sorcery. When people hear this is a low magic setting, they, they instantly think low magic means less powerful. And that is not the case. Magic is just a, a stand in for being able to do certain things. So to say low magic 
all you're doing is saying uh while while there may not be a lot of magic in this world, that doesn't mean the rules do not model in a way where your characters are not powerful. There could be something else that replaces magic that gives your character mechanically game mechanically wise, just as much power as a character that can use magic. Um, So low magic, high magic, all those things don't, don't uh, equate those with, with game mechanical power. They, they're narrative tools. They're narrative ways. They're world way, building ways. Uh, so, yeah. you know. That's a great point. Yeah. yeah. Like that a lot. Well, uh, so I think maybe we look now at the news. What do you think? I think we should go to the news. And I want you to kick us off with this Dragonlance Heroes of Kryn Unearthed Arcana Revisited. Yeah. So this is the Unearthed Arcana that came out, I don't know, like, you know, a few weeks ago, and they very quickly have turned it around and revised it, which is, you know, not, they've done this a couple of times before where they go, here, try version two. Uh, and the survey is already out for this, so you, you probably only have, you know, a little bit of time after you listen to the show to take the survey, and the link is in our show notes. Um, so they've changed some things. First thing is the Kender. Before there was this mention, as we talked about on our show, about the Feywild, which was a little weird. That's gone now. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. they, they sort of claimed in a video that, well, now that you know that Dragonlance is coming, we can fully talk about things. To which I'm right. like, okay, sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the god of craft has, makes them not the Feywild, inspires them. Um, the frightened condition that used to be, they got sort of advantage on it, and now they, they're immune to it, fine. Right. Uh, but then the really interesting thing is they got rid of the whole pockets uh, capability they had, right. which was a weird mechanic, but the concept was steeped in what Kender do, which is that Kender, I mean, let's be honest, they're stealing things, yeah. appropriating things, however you want to come up with it. But that's right. how it is in the novels, right? Kender just have hands that end up grabbing things. And so all of a sudden, when you need the key to the door the Kender has the key because he took it from the jailer four scenes ago and it just comes up now. And that's what that was trying to create. And friend of the show, Tim Egan actually shared a version from D and D next, which is actually pretty good. So way back when, when fifth edition was being play tested, they came up with this idea. Kender constantly pick things up and pocket them and then often forget about them. If you find yourself in need of a piece of non-magical equipment, there's a 25% chance you have it. Roll a D4. If you roll a four, you find the item in your pocket, pack, or pouch. If you roll anything else, you don't have such an item on you, and you can't search again on the same item until you've spent at least one day in a town or city. Rummaging through your pouches, packs, and pockets takes one minute. Yeah. I actually like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do too. And this this is one of those situations, I think, where, first of all, I love the fact that they so quickly turned this around. and. Mm. And you know, showed showed their work, right? They 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 showed their work, and I love it when game designers do this. It does open them up to criticism, of course, sure. uh, but it also you know helps us as consumers of their products understand where they are in terms of their mm-hmm. you know w- the, what they're trying to do with the game, uh, and the the Kender the Kender thing is. I, I feel like, first of all, it's one of those things that it works so well in a novel, yeah. right? Because it's a it's a solution to narrative problems. 
all right, I've written myself into this corner. They're trapped. <laughs> I need to get them out of this trap. Ah, the perfect thing. Let's have this type of character that always has what he needs in his pocket. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's. we need to come up for a reason why. Well, it's because, you know, he steals everything. Without or, or, even, or why, when the party splits up, one person doesn't have what they should have. Right, right. exactly. And exactly. into trouble. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. But and so trying to mechanize that as a game rule is very difficult. And one of the ways to do it is exactly like Kendra Pockets. It's put it more in the DM's hands. Uh, Well, even this doesn't even go all the way of putting it in the DM's hands. Uh, it, it, It mechanizes it, but it's 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 a loose mechanic. Um, mm-hmm. Even the even the spend you must one spend one day in a town or a city. All right, one day. Do you mean twenty four full hours? Do you mean is an hour passing through a city one day? Right. It there's also the the best solution as a storytelling role playing game is just give them something that says there's a chance that the uh, Kender character will have something they need in their pocket at any given time. DM, you decide when that works. Mm. You know, th- that's the best way to handle it as a storytelling game. Sure. As, a, as This is what but, other RPGs would do. This yeah. is what other, but th- fans of D&D, as we've seen with things like background features, right? They don't want role-playing stuff. Right? <laughs> they want numbers and they want to roll the dice. Now, this is, I think the audience is changing. I think the audience mm-hmm. is swinging in, in a different direction a little bit, but still there's this, we need the crunch in the books. We need to sell books. We need the crunch in the books to sell it because players want the crunch. So we have to come up with and and it's just a, not an easy thing to yeah. mechanize. Uh, so yeah, I, yeah, I'm, I'm cool with whatever, because I'm never going to play a Kender and <laughs> And I can't see groups that I play with uh, being too Kender uh, centric. So I can't I, wait to be at an all Kender table with you. Yes, yes. Uh, unless I'm being paid an <laughs> exorbitant amount of money to be at that table. Uh, no, I, I, I'm joking, right? I would I would play with it. I would do. I know. But uh, it's just you know, game mechanical, game design wise, it's in this troubled space. Yeah. that that you have to really balance and it's the I same I, I still think though yeah. there is you can design your way through this right there is a way that one can do it there, and, there and, yes there totally is a I, way. i'd like to see I, I feel like i would have liked to have seen them try right. rather than pass right because what they did is just give a skill proficiency instead of this right. and I, I get it it's hard yeah but there is something that can be done here that would be much more interesting and flavorful than a skill proficiency. It, it's true. There is. But then what are you giving up? Hmm? Right. You, uh, is it, is it, yeah, you know, like even this Kender Pockets thing, like I said, this whole, you must spend one day in a town or city, that's vague, right? Eh, it's fine. It, 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 it's fine until it's not, right? It's fine yeah, for well, you we, and me. We can tighten the language, but that's not, I mean, I think the important part is to say, you just can't do it all over. The, you, you can't do it every second, right? So you, you can refine that part of it. And and I think that the core of this in terms of a playtest document is, is you know, do we like this? You say you want this non-magical thing mm-hmm. and it's a one in four chance that you get it. Does right. that work? 
Uh, yeah, well, maybe, maybe it depends. I mean, non-magical equipment. Does that does it have to be from the player's handbook list? Uh, can it be anything? <laughs> can it be the king's crown? Uh-huh. Uh, that's non-magical. Is that equipment? Yeah, uh, equipment. Maybe. Yeah. Well, yeah. Is, right. No, you're right. No, right see, you so I mean, no matter what, then you start yeah. giving restrictions, and then the more restrictions you add, the less clear it becomes, or the more clear it becomes, but the less the the more unwieldy it becomes. And so, you're right. And and D and D does not like to say the DM makes a call or exactly. you know, they don't, they don't like to print those words, even though it's elsewhere, everywhere in the books, right? right. They, they do, they will say it elsewhere, but they don't like putting it as part of the language. Cause then the language is right. You know, too open yeah. and, know, and perfectly open. wonderful other games that are not as mechanical as D and D, but close right. say all the time, DM, you make the call here. You know, you decide what happens when there's a success with a consequence, right? And and D and D wants to be that way, right? It wants to be you, the the game master, tell this wonderful story with your friends, but it just can't get over that legacy hump of right. We need a rule for everything. Yeah, and and I mean, talking about narrative versus uh, narrative versus game rules, right? This whole immune to frightened versus is, is the same thing, right? I think immunity to any condition at first level, even elves in sleep, I think is mm. is a remnant of narratives of the past that aren't the best game mechanics. Well, you know what I what I would argue there is the problem is that story wise, what you're trying to 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 say is, you know, it's not necessarily that you're trying to achieve immunity, but what you want the the, pro, the problem is the game mechanics, right? That. Right. If if you just give me resistance or advantage, what'll often happen is I'll roll the dice and I'm the kender who's supposed to be so you know impervious to fear, mm-hmm. and I'm going to roll a one, mm-hmm. and then the person next to me whose backstory could very well be I'm scared of everything is going to roll a twenty, right? And suddenly I'm the one running away from the dragon and they're the one standing in place, and so just even advantage will often not create that narrative we're looking for. So immunity is the only way to really like iron in the like, you know, I'm an yeah. elf and I, you can't magically put me to sleep. I'm a kender. You can't force me to run away. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I totally agree with you. But again, what I'm saying is where does this story come from? Right. Does mm-hmm. it come from gameplay or does it come from a novel that was written that has nothing to do with gameplay? And now we have to try to mechanize something that works narratively just fine, right? Mm. Go back to Lord of the Rings. Why do elves, why do rangers have to be alone? Well, because this book that had nothing to do with a game told us that. So now (laughs) we have to make a less uh, mechanically smooth game uh, to to model that. And the the alternative is we would say, you know, for things like Kender, for any race we would come up with, we would just say what they tend to be like and let you role play that right mm-hmm. rather than provide you features for it but players love the features and yeah. designers love giving out those features so sure. then it's like well that's i think that's where you end up right because what you right. would want to do is just say kender tend to be courageous to a fault like they almost can't perceive fear right 
but then we feel like we got to give them a feature. And if we've got to give them a feature, well, we can't ignore that fear thing because it's a big part of their backstory. So then we got to right. cement it in some way. And that's hard. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, and this is the tension between narrative and, and mechanics that we deal with all the time. And it's especially rough when the narrative precedes the mechanics yeah. as opposed to the mechanics hmm. helping you create the narrative. Hmm. But hey, you know. We, well, we, we could talk about this all yeah. day. But the only we need... last change oh, here, Sean, is Taunt, which was already strong. It's still really strong. In fact, it probably gets a higher DC because um, you can now add your int, wisdom, or charisma, not just your charisma. Right. So it, it probably is a fairly strong DC. But what it now does is when you use Taunt on a target, uh, the Kender, Kender causes them to have disadvantage on a, any attack that doesn't include the Kender. Mm-hmm. So it at least has an outlet. It can attack you, though we know how players are. They're going to do it when they're far away from it and so right. on. And so, but, so it's still a problem. I don't love Taunt, but um, but at least it's not disadvantaged against everything. Right. But it's still pretty rough. Yeah, it's it's strong. And we, 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 we will deal. We will deal with, with the strength of it. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, backgrounds and feats and, and everything else. What What did they change about all those? At the high level, what they did was they basically said, hey, we hear that you are telling us these backgrounds basically give you a free feat. So what we're going to do is give everybody a free feat when you are making a character in the War of the Lance campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get a bonus feat at first level and you get a bonus feat at fourth level and you either have one of the backgrounds that give, gives you a feat or you get a menu, but the menu is really small. It's divinely favored, which is in this playtest document, yep. skilled and tough. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. And then for the fourth level, it's like alert, mobile, sentinel, or warcaster. And all I can think of it is if the point was to give you that Dragonlance experience, well, all right, a Knight of Salamnia is going to say, yeah, I, I feel it, right? I got this background, Knight of Salamnia, Squire of Salamnia. And now I, uh, you know, have this extra feat that I get to choose to be a, a knight of Salamnia, and the sorcerer is going to say the same thing or wizard or whatever. But everybody else is like, I got some extra skills. Yeah, and that's your deep Dragonlance experience. I just, I don't know. Like maybe I hope that when they publish the Dragonlance book, we find out that there's actually a bunch of feats so that you really tap into the setting, but because otherwise you have some players who are just deeply connected and some that aren't at all, and mm-hmm. that seems very strange to me. So if you're a human and, and you take a, the human variant that gives you a feat, do you mm-hmm. get another feat if you're in this campaign, I guess? or yeah. game? That, yeah. Well, I, the other <laughs> question, which I saw Mike Shea ask Jeremy Crawford on Twitter, but it didn't get an answer, was... Um, what if I don't want feats in my campaign because yeah. the feats are optional in fifth edition? Right. Are they no longer optional? Are they not optional in Dragonlance? Yeah. Yeah, I I guess. I guess so it's, it depends it's very on the game interesting. Yeah. Um I'll be very curious to see what the final version comes out uh yeah. here. Um well, it, the other thing about these things is like say a feat like alert, right? Some of it is that you can't be surprised, so you really don't want multiple characters taking it. Right. So the menu gets really increasingly small as as yeah. people, you know, like if someone takes alert, then, well, I guess I got to take mobile, but man, I didn't really want that. You know, it's just, it's yeah. strange. Well, I mean, you know what's going to happen with most players and most game masters with this, right? If they, if it's published as is, and it says you get to take a free feed at first level, and here's the, the fo- if you don't take the background, 
here are the four feats you get. Players are just going to say, well, I want this feat instead. I want to take right, Polearm Master mm-hmm. <laughs> instead. And what I mean, as the Game Master, then you are put into the situation where you either have to be the heavy and say no, right. or just do what most DMs are going to end up doing and go, okay, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And yeah, it, it's... It's a uh, it's a whole thing, and that comes to the question you wrote here in our show notes. Will five e or five point five version of D anD D just give a level a level one fee as normal, like third edition did? Mm-hmm. And that's that's a great question. My question is, does Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro want five point five to be more or less complex? which would lead to more purchases, making <laughs> a simpler game or making a more complex game. What will lead to more supplements being published? I think we know the answer. And I think we know the direction that they, if well, business-wise, are, are likely yeah. to go. Uh, but Well, there's two answers to it, right? I think that complexity sells because you go for all these features. But you and I run tons and tons of tables for new players, and new players can't even track a level one character as it is now. Like fifth I, edition is too complicated for the new player, right? I agree. And so when you start tossing in more stuff at level one, right? A background that already it feels like if you try to explain to a new player the Squire of Salamnia background yeah. or the Tower of High Sorcery background, like that that is yeah. That's a lot. You could spend an hour telling them all about what this is supposed to mean to them. Yep. We don't have that much time. We're, we need to play now. And so yeah. all of this to me is is contrary to wanting to pull in more new players. Yep. Though it probably is a great way to sell to existing players or established players. Eh. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree with everything you just said. <laughs> I just don't know if the simpler and grab new players option will resonate in the expand and do more and right uh, yeah. kind of culture that most businesses, large corporations tend to embrace. Sure. Yeah. Yep. So who, but, who though again, like, I mean, acquisition is your number one thing, right? And, yeah, and so I would sure. not lose sight of that is what I would try to say. But, I, but you know, the rest of this, uh, there are a number of changes. A lot of it's just sort of like the school of magic changed or mm-hmm. things like that. Um, the, the, the biggest change that, that's left there is just that for all of the Knight of Salamnia feats, they have changed from being these sort of benefits that were things like, you know, I bump up someone's saving throw to being essentially choose these one A or B from the battle master fighter uh, maneuvers, okay. which is interesting. I mean, I think it actually works kind of well because they're knights and so on, but it, it really just digs into that concept. Yeah. Um, so the only thing is, I mean, I think you wouldn't want to play a battle master at a Dragonlance table because <laughs> there probably are going to be more characters that are also doing it and you want to shine as well. Yeah. But uh, unless you are also a knight, then you can yeah. battle master it up. Battle masters all around. Cool. Well, yeah, that is, uh, as of the recording, it's still up. So if you haven't mm-hmm. read it yet, give it a read and give some feedback. Um, next in our news is more news about D&D Onslaught, the WizKids two-player competitive skirmish board game that releases in September of 2022. Uh, this is the sort of uh, prodigy, if you will, of D&D minis, of what was the dungeon command dungeon command yeah uh, where players take control of an adventuring party and battle rival adventurers uh, 
Um, you could have factions like Harpers versus Zentarum. Players will send their parties into dungeons and confront monsters in an attempt to come away with treasure and glory. So th- I, that's interesting to me. It sounds like you're against another player, but there also might be like a third party of of monsters to confront at the same time. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. It, it, I maybe because the pictures show like a dragon mini, and I don't know that one side has a dragon, right? Um, so yeah, I, I think maybe that's the idea: is you're going into this base to take it down, but competing against the other group at the same time. Yeah. And so currently, it's just Harpers and Tentarm are the two choices. So one player takes one, the other player takes the other, and it feels otherwise a lot like Dungeon Command, like you have you know a bunch of cards, double sided game board painted minis uh, that come from previous sets, you know, all that kind of little tokens you put down on the terrain. Yeah. Uh, it's not cheap. It's $140. <laughs> hey, whiz kids. <laughs> yeah. Um, we see you. Uh, it's, and it's supposed to play 90 minutes. So, you yeah. know, yeah, my I was... argument is always 90 minutes. I might as well just run D and D, but, um, right. Yeah. But, uh, I... but I'm sure I'll try this. I, I was all about it until I saw that retail price. And then I was like, yeah, price is on yeah I'll just go back and play Dungeon Command. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, but hey, it's there. Uh, it comes with 21 fully painted miniatures, uh, a double-sided game board, 4D20 dice, 16 dial cards, 26 standard cards, 41 mini cards, 71 tokens, and 14 terrain elements, and the dreaded rule book. So mm. it is definitely a uh, a board game that you could, if you're a D and D fan, could invest in and probably have a good time uh, for that hundred and forty dollars price point. I have uh, all your friends, I guess. News from the Adventurers League: They are going to adapt Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel and the Critical Role Adventure as part of their organized play program. Uh, organized play lead Chris Tulak shared this on the Yawning Portal blog that all thirteen adventures uh, will have notes for DMs that will be released at the end of June two days after the book's release. And then Bald Man Games will offer sneak previews called the Salted Legacy during their June 10th through 12th virtual weekend. That's for uh, Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel. The Critical Role Adaptation Guide will be out as of May 5th, so it's already out, providing a complete adaptation of Call of of the Netherdeep and the Adventures in Explorer's Guide to Wildmount. Uh, both have already been featured at virtual weekends and probably will continue to be so. Uh, there will also be an adaptation guide for most of the 5e Wizards of the Coast adventures, incorporating all the latest changes to the Adventures League. So the Adventures League is really hitting hard now the concept of taking current content, existing content, and adapting it as opposed to creating their own new content. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think it's hard. The team at Baldwin Games is clearly working really hard to give a good experience because you take something like, you know, the open adventure wild beyond the witchlight and try to like run chapter one in one session, right? Really right. tough, but the DMs have worked on how to do it best. Yeah. Um, I still kind of miss the season, but we'll, we'll see. I mean, the, yeah. as we've said, the constant in, in organized play has always changed. So yeah. <laughs> just yeah. wait and there'll be something else. Right. And they do have... Uh... We, we know that something's coming for Dragonlance, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that they have the uh, Red Wizards. Uh, yeah. That yeah. that campaign. It's not as Spell much Jammer content. Academy. Yeah, Spelljammer Academy. So there's no uh, dearth of 
content if you want to get into Adventures League play. Yeah. And wow. since they offer this virtual weekend once a month, uh, it's always there if you if you need your gaming fix. Yep. Speaking of Adventures League, uh, AL designer Gabrielle Harboy. Harboy sounds good. Yeah. Uh, sorry if we missed it. Up. Yeah, sorry about that. We uh, we see that she get, uh, was given the opportunity to be interviewed about her Mist Hunter's adventure, the 11th in the series called Calling Up on the Dead. And in it, she shares her writing process and some you know minor informational spoilers about the adventure. That's all at the Yawning Portal at yawningportal.dnd.wizards.com. You know who needs an author is the Border Kingdoms. They just posted on Twitter that they are looking for AL Adventure authors for their special region that they've given permission by Adventures League to write. So you can write for the Border Kingdoms, um, just like people can also write for the Moonshays. Mm -hmm. And they release adventures several times a year, so they are looking to write the adventures for the next Gameholk Con. And if you're interested, they say it's borderkingdoms at gameholcon.com. Or you can contact them through the Twitter post. We have a link in the notes. Yep. So they'll be looking for a writing sample, but you can submit that. And, you know, if, if your work checks out, it's a nice opportunity to, uh, to get some writing done for a bit of cash and uh, yep. a little, you know, fame and notoriety. You'll be living on it for years or at least days. Uh, the free Scarlet Citadel section has opened on Roll20. You want to tell us a little, little bit about that? Yeah, so there is a Roll20 integration of the well-known Kobold Press Adventure Scarlet Citadel, but the part that's called the Dwarven Barracks, which is sort of two levels of it, uh, is being given away. And I took a look at it. I claimed it. Uh, you can look, click on our link in our show notes and get it. And then you install it. And, and I looked at it and it was really nicely done. Like, I'm, I'm really impressed at how nicely they did the integration. In fact, you can almost learn how to use Roll20 just from this one uh, implementation because it's got so many neat tips in it. Really nicely done. Yeah. Uh, we have another famous writer getting a full-time job in game design, uh, Celeste Conowich, who's been on this show previously has yeah. joined Cobalt Press as a senior game designer. Um, she has worked previously as a freelancer and also with 2C Gaming. So congratulations to both Celeste for getting a full-time gig and to Cobalt Press for getting yeah. you know, a, an amazing writer and game designer on their staff. And speaking, speaking of, of 2C, 2C Gaming, gaming mm -hmm, go ahead. Uh, they have launched Cosmic Chronicle, which is a 5th edition-focused Patreon. And uh, we have the link in the show notes. You can find also the announcement on their Twitter. So they are providing supporters with monthly 5e content. Mm -hmm. And in convention news, a little sad news is Oof. that uh, PAX East uh, was vaccination and mask required. And uh, one of their enforcers, who are the volunteers that work at PAX, uh, passed away from COVID that she contracted at PAX East. This was in the same week where Origins, the convention in Columbus, Ohio, said that it was lifting its mask mandate to make it a uh, mask optional convention, although they are mm -hmm. still requiring um, vaccinations, apparently. So uh, it's it just shows that although we are entering a different um, time in this, the life cycle of this 
pandemic, uh, it's still deadly to people uh, in some cases. So whatever you do, do so with your the thoughts of, you know, your friends, family, your own health uh, in mind. Yeah. Um, All right. So what do you think? Uh, Shall we jam with some space on some toast? One more bit of announcement. Oh, yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah, that's right. By the time you hear this, it will be just a couple of days before Ghostfire Gaming runs a Kickstarter called Aurora Age of Desolation. And this is a Kickstarter that I uh, am helping with quite a bit, uh, doing did a, a bit of the writing and led the writing team. And I am very excited about this sort of post-cataclysm campaign, where before I was talking about settings that sort of pull pieces away to make sure that the narrative that you tell the stories that you tell with your game are different than a typical D and D setting. This is one of those cases uh, where a, an, an apocalypse has hit this realm, actually five separate realms that were separated during, during the cataclysm. And it is a game first of survival and then of, uh, trying your best to bring some sort of stability to a land where everything is raging out of control. Uh, Sounds awesome. So if you go to Kickstarter and look up Ghostfire Gaming or Aurora, A-R-O-R-A, uh, I would appreciate it if you would at least give it a glance and see if it's something that is of interest to you. So thank Sweet. you for gi- giving me that time for that plug. Oh, I know you've been doing a lot of work on this, Sean. So uh, yes, indeed. a lot of people. We'll be doing it. streams where if you have questions, you can ask. And we'll be showing off uh, some things starting the week after this show drops. Do the questions have to be pertinent? Uh, they have to be asked in the form of a question. <laughs> <laughs> but with that in mind, since gotcha. Spelljammer wow, wow, <laughs> is confirmed, we decided to go back and take a look at the very first Spelljammer adventure written for second edition D&D called Wild Space. The module was coded SJA for Spelljammer Adventure, and it was released in February of 1990. Uh, it was the first adventure published to support the box set, the Spelljammer box set, written by freelancer Alan Varney with help from Rick Swan so they could meet the deadline. Um, the DMs Guild history says there was a chapter featuring the Rock of Brawl that Alan turned in, but it was cut for space. And it's not a cut for wild space. Um, it was not a short <laughs> adventure to begin with. So I can see that uh, that maybe some cutting was needed. Uh, so overall, Teos, give me give me uh, first the, the sort of high level view of this adventure yeah. and then, then your overall thoughts on it. Well, so, okay. So this adventure is bold. It is wild. It's grand. And if you're making a space adventure, I think that's, you know, that's awesome. One question I would immediately ask is, is it maybe a little much for an introductory adventure? Should we maybe get the players feet wet, the DM's feet wet a bit, you know, have a little romp around in space, fire the ballista once, come back. And then we launch into something super unbelievable. But no, they went, they, I mean, just, whew, it is a lot. So this is like the D&D version of going to the Death Star, 
but with this enormous sci-fi history behind it all around beholders mm-hmm. and it's also your first time on a spell jammer and your captain is actually a shape-changed beholder mm-hmm. right <laughs> and i haven't even covered all of it but right, that's a right. lot of it and and it gets more wild and out there yes. from there uh so this I never ran this, but yeah, I, I've owned uh, it forever, right? And so okay. I'm pretty sure there are two possibilities. One is that we might have been a little higher level than than this was. It's for level six to eight. Mm-hmm. Um, but possibly what happened was I looked at this and just went, ah, this is too much. I can't, you know, mm-hmm. and kept going, which is not what you want in an introductory adventure. But boy, they yeah, they went bold. They went big. Yes, they did. Uh, so this is for four to six characters of level six to eight. And like I said uh, before, it was written for second edition ad and which is what they called it. And it wasn't long after that uh, edition had come out. And in, in fact, they, they take great pains in saying, if you're still using ad and first edition adventures, you can still run this, really. And uh-huh. then they actually go through several changes. You know, these are some of the changes that were made. So you just need to, while you're running it for ad and you know, the monsters are the same, kind of. There's a little more information. And, oh, by the way, there's these ability checks. So this is how you do an ability check. And yeah, they they take the time to describe these. Uh, so I, I wanted to look at the introduction first because this goes to directly, directly to that first question we had from Andrew, uh, which, which is about, you know, entertaining versus informing. Uh, yeah for for an adventure so the it starts with dm notes and it says it's waiting out there to those below trapped in the ring of the horizon it promises only vast black emptiness but it waits and in time they arrive and i'm thinking i have no idea what you're talking about i don't <laughs> you use it you use you it about, you use it and you use they, Them. and I have yeah. no idea who it or they are. Now, it, it follows up the brave and foolhardy, the lucky and unfortunate. All these visitors discover its secret. And I'm like, okay, they are adventurers. I still don't know what it is, right? <laughs> and so while this is supposed to be entertaining, right? It's supposed to be mm-hmm. setting a tone. I'm entertained. <laughs> right. I, me, me. Sean, who reads these as a user manual going, this is not helping me at all. Uh, It's not, I see you're trying to set a tone, but I have no idea what's it. Is it a creature? Is it a thing? Is it the space? Is it not the space? I don't know. Uh, So that's one of those questions where some people are going to love that. Ooh, that's evocative. That sets the right tone. Mm -hmm. For me, I'm like, I'm already lost. I'm two words in. And it says it's waiting, and I have no idea what it is. Uh, and that's, yeah, I think this adventure is one of those classic looks at old design where we now know how to do this better. And back then we didn't. And, and this yeah. feels actually a lot like what DMs would often do that people mm-hmm. complain about, uh, would complain about then and still complain about, where, you know, it's a grand, cool idea, and you're trying to get your whole players to be super excited, and you look around the table, and none of them are. Mm-hmm. Uh, this would happen to me a lot back in the day. And I'd <laughs> yeah. be like, what are you talking about? I did a great, you know, that was so cool. And they're like, eh, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, right. you're, you're, I, I get it that I'm supposed to be mystified. Yeah. I'm mystified, but honestly also lost. And now, I'm, you know, if I had a phone back then, I would be in on it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's this is like this adventure often does this, right? Where it's like it, there's 
it's like 25% really cool and evocative, but then 75% you needed to have written it or positioned it a different way. Yeah. And, and it, it isn't different from what was written back then uh, in, in many ways. It was very, it's as soon as I like saw that the font's the same as first edition adventures, right? I'm like, I I've seen this font for years and years and years. Uh, So all of this is forgivable because it was just what was done back then. But, yeah, hope this was written in 1990. So we're talking mm. 32 years later. Yeah. Uh, you know, things have changed. The game has changed. Life has changed. Our attention spans have changed. Uh, and so, you know, well, why don't we go through the, the introduction? Tell us, tell yeah. us what's in the introduction. Yeah. And, and I unfortunately have a meeting come up in like five minutes. We'll, we'll, do, we'll have to just like touch on this and then gotcha. come back and do a part two to, to get into the place. Cause this is a truly wild ride. Yeah. But, we get a two-page overview of the plot and key elements. And, and overall, I think the, what this tries to do is good. It tries to paint the picture of everything that's taking place, which is that backstory, there are beholder nations and they're warring, which is a key thing in the Spelljammer box set. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Sazar, one of the nations, attempted to create an artifact using their dead beholder queen who once wielded great power. They did this with the help of the Arcane, who are these tall, blue-skinned humanoids that are throughout the setting sort of enabling Spelljammer equipment being available. Like, they make space possible, mm-hmm. and nobody knows why. They're just this enigma. Um, and so over the course of 200 years, they hollowed out a massive asteroid to make it into an incubator called the Hive, and then within it, a weapon called the Ravager. And the idea was to destroy all the other Beholder nations, but when they activate it, it the first thing it did was destroy them. Mm-hmm. Oops. Yeah. And um, then uh, the hive now, without anybody piloting it, just started drifting through space. But when it detects like planets, it activates and the Ravager turns on and it destroys everything. And then the Ravager goes back to sleep. And uh, beholders are drawn to this place because they want to take its power. It's like a myth of theirs. And so when they see it, hear about it, they come to it and they try to attack it. So over time, a lot of the defenses have been torn down. But, uh, and there's even a secret way in now, and one Beholder Mage, Shazogrox, has uh, has learned of this and knows how to get into this back door, needs humans to do so. So he comes to get the characters, and his whole plan is, I'm going to use the artifact called the Queen's Eyes to then use the Ravager to destroy all other Beholders and reign supreme. Uh, and... And what I can only describe is how did this plot come along? Decides to polymorph animals into crewmates mm-hmm. to pilot his ship. Yeah. And then goes off to <laughs> find PCs to help him. I'm like, why well, not just hire some humans? Yeah. But well, and he polymorphs himself too. But yeah. Yeah. With that, we will close up for uh, t- this episode. But next episode, we will get into how all of this humongous detailed backstory plays out in terms of a forward moving adventure. You will not want to miss this. You will definitely not (laughs) want to miss it. it. Yes. Your eyes will wild. Mm -hmm. But so thank you for listening. Uh, If you would like to become a patron of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash MMP to help us out. Uh, Thank you to our patrons and thank you to all our listeners for continuing to engage with us and to, uh, to rich and to Andrew for giving us some questions. You can also ask us questions on our social media site at uh, Twitter, at which is at Mastering D&D. Teos, where can people find you? 
alphastream.org on Twitter at alphastream. How about yep. you, Sean? You can find me at Sean Merwin or at Mastering DND. Mastering Dungeons is a misdirected Mark production. So, Teos, I know what you're going to do now. You're going to go to a I, meeting. Yeah. But you know but what I'm going to be thinking do? about destroying the beholder nations. Yeah, I'm going to go kill some beholders. <laughs> <laughs>